This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today's talk, what I'm going to discuss really, are properties of human skin that support thermal regulation. Humans have an uh, exceptional capability to protect against rises in body temperature or minimize heat storage when perform ex- ex- performing physical work in hot environments. This great thermoregulatory capacity probably provides several selective advantages. One, and these have been pointed out by Dr. Dan Lieberman, that in early hominins, that the ability to forage safely during peak heat times uh, allowed them to gather food where the hunters that would use the humans as prey uh, basically had to sit and use behavioral thermoregulation because they couldn't do muscular work in the heat of the day. Another potential uh, selective advantage is that some humans may have participated in persistence hunting. This required them to perform at a fairly substantial metabolic rate for extended durations to move animals probably of larger size and maybe herbivores uh, for extended periods of time until these animals suffered high body temperatures and succumbed from uh, heat stroke and thus then became food for the hunters. So the question really arises then, why can humans thermoregulate in hot conditions while foraging and hunting? Now remember, we're talking two things, the skin for thermoregulation, but also somehow the skin not only dumping the heat, but also maybe participating in the ability to sustain exercise. So humans can do this because they have really, from a thermoregulatory point of view, two unique features. The first is the ability to regulate a steady state core temperature during physical exertion. That's pretty much dependent on the metabolic rate and reasonably independent of the environment. We won't talk much about that today, but that's very much made possible by the skin's capacity to support very high heat loss. Now, what I've done here is I've constructed a table that I'm going to address uh, in the subsequent slides, factors uh, that support high skin heat loss. If you look on the left here where we have the different factors, you'll notice that four of these obviously relate to heat exchange. Upright posture, which I'll explain, skin blood flow, sweating, and large surface area. Now, these provide certain advantages, but on the other hand, as I'm going to show you a little later, they provide also problems for the body, particularly cardiovascular in nature. And there's properties of the skin or organs within the skin that help offset these disadvantages, such as sodium reabsorption and several different reflexes, which I'll talk. So... The skin can provide large heat exchange, but it also can present problems when trying to perform sustained work in the heat. Let's talk first about upright posture. Uh, The advantages of an upright posture are fairly obvious. First of all, um, you have a smaller surface area exposed for solar radiation. As a result of that, you don't absorb the solar radiation as much, so you have less of environmental heat stress. Second, not as obvious, if you're upright and your skin's exposed and I'm locomoting and moving forward, I'm going to have more air movement across my skin than if I was haunched over. And as a result of that, I improve both the convective and evaporative heat capacities or the abilities for heat loss. And third, uh, bipedal locomotion also results in lower efficiency, so a lower metabolic rate and rate of heat production to be dissipated. 
Now, before I go on, I'm just going to give some very basics of heat balance. When an individual performs physical exercise, the amount of heat they produce is proportionally to how hard they exercise. Because when muscles contract, only roughly 20% of that energy goes into contractile shortening. The remaining 80% is heat that needs to be dissipated by the body. Now, I showed the brain here because as the body stores heat, unfortunately, there's a lot of myths that humans have selective brain cooling. They don't that the brain's pretty much either similar to arterial blood pressure or arterial blood temperature, or recent evidence shows it might be slightly higher, is that as body temperature increases, we really rely on the skin for heat loss. So that the central nervous system acting through the sympathetic nervous system has a proportionate uh, physiological uh, thermoregulatory system that A, increases skin blood flow, that allows radiative and convective heat loss, and two, increases sweating, which allows, if adequate biophysics, evaporation. Let's first discuss active vasodilation. Humans, compared to most species, uh, have very highly vascularized skin. And for you sitting in a room at a room temperature, maybe 20-some degrees, 22 degrees, you probably have your cutaneous vessels constricted. So normally, if we look over here, we have constricted cutaneous vessels. Now, when an individual goes into the heat, two things occur. First of all, the skin becomes warm, and that, re that re takes away the constrictor effect. And second, which is very unique to humans, at least to my knowledge, is that you have active cutaneous vasodilation. That sympathetic innervation uh, through a variety of different pathways cause active vasodilation of the skin in proportion to the heat load of the body. So the greater the heat load, the greater the vasodilation. And thus then, as this warm blood moves to the surface of the skin, if the temperature gradient is from the skin to the ambient conditions, we now can have convective and radiative heat loss. So in this figure cartoon, we show the impact of um, skin blood flow, and this is whole body skin blood flow, as a function of core temperature. What you can see is this. If an individual is resting, you can achieve very high skin blood flows, up to 8 liters a minute, which is extremely high because we know in a temperate environment, cardiac output is only about 5 liters per minute sitting, average human. With exercise, we find again that at a given threshold that the skin temperature will increase, but it cannot increase as high as it can when you're sitting at rest. And this is because of this blood pressure problem that you have constrictor tone so that you don't have as high of a vasodilation. But you probably can have skin blood flows maybe in a range of five to six liters. Now, the second avenue of heat loss is through eccrine sweating, eccrine sweat glands. Um, eccrine sweat glands, at least in their number uh, and, and dis dispersion, are fairly unique to humans. We have about one and a half to four million. They're located over the entire skin. Uh, they're sympathetically cholinergic, uh, innervated. They uh, secrete a, a very hypotonic fluid to the surface of the skin. Obviously, as this fluid evaporates, it then results in cooling of the superficial areas of the skin and also the blood within the capillaries. So eccrine sweat glands are different from the apocrine glands, which are often located with hair. And again, they're located over the entire body. Now, humans can have very high levels of sweat rate, 
And as a result, if that sweats evaporate, they can have tremendous amounts of evaporative cooling. And this is why they can live in environments where the ambient temperature is higher than their skin temperature. Here we have uh, some data cartoon of a plot of whole body sweat rate as a function of exercise intensity. As we move this way, the people are running harder, and it's going from a cool to a hot condition. The first point I want to make is this. We've all seen crazy numbers in the literature about how, many peop- how much people can sweat. Generally, it's not unusual if you're doing sustained hard work in the heat to have a sweat rate of one liter per hour, maybe a liter and a half. The highest sweat rates that I've seen doing thousands of experiments, whole bodies, about a little over two liters. People do report in the literature two and a half to three and a half liters per hour. I haven't seen them. I assume it's possible in a ex- very extreme athlete for a short period of time. But high sweat rates can be sustained in the areas of, of a liter and a half. Now, when you have these high rates of water flux, you have to remember that the sweat comes from the interstitial fluid, which comes from the plasma. So as you sweat, you're going to be decreasing water in your plasma, in your interstitial space, in your extracellular fluid volume. So as a result, if you're sweating and you're not replacing fluids, your blood volume will decrease as you dehydrate. So now what we see is that as an individual is exercising in the heat for whatever purpose of foraging or hunting, that we have this great capacity for heat loss, but we have two penalties, and this is shown in a cartoon. The first is that if we look, what we have here is the blood distribution in a person standing like myself in a cool environment. You can see that the blood's pretty much distributed into the thoracic area. It's easier to return blood volume to the heart so that you can sustain cardiac output or how much blood flow goes per unit time. Now, with heat stress, you have two things that occur first. One is you have the increased skin blood flow, but what I also didn't mention, if the superficial veins become warm, they become compliant, so the blood sits in the periphery. This means that the blood's not in the thoracic area, it's more difficult to return to the heart, reduces filling, and makes it more difficult to sustain cardiac output while simultaneously performing exercise. So one, the displacement. Two, the second problem is that, as I had told you, that if you decrease your total body water and dehydrate, your liquid portion of your blood decreases, so your plasma volume, your blood volume reduces. All at the same time is when I'm standing upright, so I have to work against gravity to perfuse the brain, and I'm exercising and have to perfuse skeletal muscles. So this really causes a conundrum in terms of the human body. Well, the skin helps to address this, and I'm going to give several ways that it, that it does this. First of all, not only do eccrine sweat glands secrete hypotonic fluid, but they have the ability to reabsorb sodium, that, that basically you have a, a reabsorption duct. So that as the sweat comes down, that humans can reabsorb sodium. And how much sodium they can reabsorb depends on how well they're acclimatized to the heat. Here's some data uh, that shows local sweat rate over an area of skin, and the sodium concentration in the secreted sweat in, one, people that are unacclimatized to the heat, uh, people that live in Boston in the wintertime, and people that are acclimatized in the heat, people that live in Atlanta, where I live currently, in the summertime. And what you can see that, uh, obviously, the higher the sweat rate, the less efficient the act of transport is because the sodium is moving by and you can only retake up so much. But with acclimatization, you can greatly reduce the amount of sodium in the sweat. 
And in fact, you can basically have or have a third of much, a third less sodium in the sweat after climatization. So it may not be unusual at all to see sodium in secreted sweat on a climatized person, maybe 50, 60 milliequivalents, and 10, maybe not 10, but 20 milliequivalents. Well, this is important because this sodium that's reabsorbed goes, goes back into the interstitial, into the plasma, and into the extracellular space. And when we look at the extracellular fluid space, the volume in that space is very much dependent on sodium concentration. That's the primary cation that's the difference between the intracellular space. So as we absorb sodium into our, our back into our plasma, our extracellular sodium concentration increases, and this results in an osmotic gradient that causes you to pull water from inactive muscle, where water is plentiful. So this retention of sodium then allows the inactive muscle to pull, act as a reservoir. So this is a way that you can defend your blood volume or your plasma volume by moving water throughout the body. So it's very important because at a given level of dehydration, plasma volume would be reduced less. Now, what's also not as obvious, and it's being much more well understood lately, is that skin provides sensory information that supports thermal regulation. And just simplistically, I'm going to call these cold receptors, warm receptors, and mechanical receptors. But through these receptors, we can sense wetness, and we also can sense thermal comfort or thermal sensations. The wetness sensation, I'm going to show you in a minute, is very important because as the skin's wet, that means that skin's not evaporating. That helps you basically reduce your sweating rate so you have less wasteful sweating to to defend your your, uh, body water. And thermal sensations are extremely important, is that A, they drive uh, behavioral thermal regulation. Skin temperature, skin wettedness, as well as heart rate are what drive that. And in addition, I'm going to show you a reflex that's probably related to the skin that's often often appreciated that can actually drive up core temperature to help reduce skin blood flow requirements. Let's first move and look at the impact of wet skin on sweat suppression. Here we have on the y-axis total body sweating rate during minutes of exercise where individuals are performing a given metabolic rate of exercise over a 30-minute duration. One time they're not acclimatized to the heat, and the other time they're climatized. During this period of time, the investigators are continually ramping up humidity. So here in the beginning, it's dry, and here at the end, it's very humid. It keeps getting more and more humid. First thing is is that you can note that if humans acclimatize to the heat, they can have a much higher sweating rate. So you see the much higher sweating rate in acclimatized individuals. But second, and very important, is is that you can see that as the humidity increases, the sweating rate decreases, whether they're unacclimatized or not. So the body's sensing that the skin's wet, that the sweat's not being evaporated, it's being wasted, and as a result, I'll tune down my wettedness. And this really can have a lot of important implications. Um, Here's some old studies that were done where they got a large number of people and they had them perform the same amount of physical activity outdoors, in a desert, and a tropic environment. So they had the same metabolic rates, so they had roughly the same amounts of heat to be dissipated, but on one condition, the tropic, the skin's wet, and on the other condition, the desert, the skin's dry. What you can see that for 24-hour sweat rates for this population, it greatly reduced the water requirements from about maybe five liters down to two or three, so half the water requirements. 
So I, by reabsorbing sodium, I can move water into, to, from reservoirs within my body to defend blood volume. By having skin wetness, I can sense that, and I can reduce how much I lose and how much I dehydrate. So skin's very important then for allowing individuals to minimize the effects of dehydration. Now, I don't have a good slide to show this. If I did, it would take my 10 minutes to, to uh, explain it. But when humans basically perform exercise under most environmental conditions, how high their core temperature rises is a function of metabolic rate. And it's pretty much independent of the environment. But what you see as the environment gets warmer and the skin gets warmer, there's a point where the steady state core temperature will elevate. So the core temperature will elevate, but there's still sufficient biophysics that, it, that you can just maintain that. So for some reasons, and it's been known for a long time, that humans then will somehow pick to have a higher core temperature at times. And this really kind of befuddled physiologists because back in the old days, they used to think high core temperature's bad, low core temperature's uh, good. Sort of like Animal Farm, four legs good, two legs bad. Um, so what Dr. Rao, Larry Rao from University of Washington pointed out very elegantly is that this actually provides an advantage. And here I'm going to show you a, a table but here we have an individual exercising in the heat three, three different times, same metabolic rate, same amount of evaporative heat loss. But here we have now a core temperature of 38, skin temperature of 34. So we have a core-to-skin temperature gradient of 4 degrees. What we see then is if we do the calculations, you would require a skin blood flow of about 2.5 liters. Now, if it got warmer outside and the skin temperature went up, you have a smaller gradient, and now it requires more, because you have a smaller gradient now from the skin to the ambient, so you have to move more blood through the skin to have the same amount of heat loss to defend core temperature. So what happens is, is when core temperature actually rises up, it widens the score to core to skin temperature gradient, and it reduces the skin blood flow requirements, thus alleviating some of the cardiovascular stress. So in summary, I think that when we look at the skin and how it supports thermal regulation, we not only have to think about heat loss, but we have to think about the other functions that it, do, that it does that supports the cardiovascular system. I think we've established that skin has an exceptional heat loss capability, that you probably can have maximum skin blood flows up to 8 liters. Um, that would be for a seated person in the heat, but very substantial that you can have very high sweating rates, at least in maybe the Olympic, unique Olympic athlete, up to three liters per hour, but they're probably generally much lower in other individuals. And that skin supports blood pressure regulation. One, through sodium conservation, which pulls water from the intracellular spaces, particularly inactive muscle, to help support blood volume. Two, by suppressing the wetted skin so that we don't have wasteful sweat, all of these acting against dehydration and then through thermal sensations, by one working to allow behavioral thermal regulation so that the individual could titrate the workload or seek shade so they don't work too hard, but also probably combined with information from baroreceptors within the cardiovascular system to allow the thermal regulatory system to allow core temperature to drift up and reduce cardiovascular strain. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.